At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Okay, history of the Cold War fans. David Marsh has rallied Canada to join the Allied cause in the defense of freedom, democracy, and capitalism. A strong ally of both America and Britain, it rallies its small but yet determined population to meet the communist menace. Don't forget, if you want to join our little Cold War, make your pledge and tell us which country you want to sway in the struggle for hearts and minds. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 23, The Late British Empire, 1945 to 1955. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So in this episode, we're going to examine the late British Empire and the early Cold War and its importance in shaping the conflict. Great Britain came out of the Second World War a junior partner of the United States. The British Empire had suffered over 400,000 deaths and millions of pounds worth of damage from the Blitz and the V-1 and V-2 rocket attacks at the end of the war. She had racked up an immense war debt of some 21 billion pounds or roughly 20 trillion in 2015 dollars. This debt exceeded Great Britain's GDP at the time by roughly 200%. Much of this debt was held in foreign hands, which was around with around 3.4 billion being owed overseas, mainly to creditors in the United States, a sum which represented about around a third of her annual GDP. Even at the end of the war, Britain needed American financial assistance, and in 1945, Britain took a loan for $586 million, in addition to a further $3.7 billion line of credit. The debt was to be paid off in 50 annual repayments commencing in 1950. Some of these loans were only paid off in the early 21st century. Great Britain also faced troubles in her colonies, especially India and Palestine, in the immediate aftermath of the war. Despite these troubles, Great Britain's situation should be judged in relation to the other great powers of the period. The United States, like Great Britain, suffered economic troubles in the early post-war years, most notably the rail strikes and steel strikes of 1946, and the difficulties of transitioning from a wartime to a peacetime economy. The Soviet Union, in contrast to Great Britain, had lost an estimated 26.6 million people in the Second World War, far more than the British Empire, and suffered an estimated 2.6 trillion rubles worth of damage. The Soviet Union had been far more devastated by the war than Great Britain. It's important to remember that despite Great Britain's weaknesses and setbacks, it had survived the war in a much better condition than Japan, the Soviet Union, or the rest of Europe. In 1945, Great Britain still had 4 million British and Imperial troops under arms, the second largest fleet in the world, and 27,000 aircraft. Great Britain remained arguably the third strongest geopolitical and military power in the world well into the 1970s through its projection of diplomatic and military power. 
British defense spending remained roughly constant in absolute terms from 1955 into the late 1980s. Great Britain's V-bomber fleet of long-range nuclear bombers and its navy gave the British the ability to project power on a global scale. As well, Great Britain remained technologically one of the world's most advanced societies. The number of scientific workers multiplied more than three times in Great Britain from 1931 to 1951. During the Second World War, Britain contributed greatly to breaking the German Enigma codes. They were the first to effectively deploy radar. They developed the first computers, Colossus, and the first mass production operational jet, the Meteor. And they were the third nation to develop an atomic bomb in 1952, only three years behind the Soviet Union and eight years ahead of the fourth atomic power, France. Nevertheless, the British Empire faced two great challenges in the early Cold War a Soviet Union in Central Europe, and troubles with its major partner and primary lender, the United States. Many of the United States were hostile about the future of the British Empire. Many Americans, instinctually from their own colonial experience, opposed the idea of propping up the British Empire with American arms and cash now that the war was over. This placed Britain in a hard position since it saw its empire as a force for good in the world and had just helped to stop the forces of Nazism in Europe and Japan's imperialism in the Pacific. Second, Britain didn't see how it could ever recover economically and repay its war debts without her colonies. She was heavily dependent on the exports of these colonies to bring cash into the economy and as a subsidized market for her domestic industries. The empire's African and Caribbean colonies especially took on new value as Great Britain could trade their raw materials for dollars. By 1948, the colonies were earning some $600 million a year. This issue, however, resolved itself as the Soviet Union became more of a threat in American eyes. America quickly realized the value of the British Empire as a firewall to the expansion of communism and as a site for valuable bases to position its forces globally to contain the Soviet Union and to eavesdrop on Soviet communications as these were the days before spy satellites. Nevertheless, from roughly 1945 to 1950, the British were under considerable American pressure at times to wrap up the empire. Moreover, relations between the U.S. and Great Britain were not always pleasant. It's true that America and Britain had a close working relationship because of the war. They shared intelligence closely and had deep personal and cultural ties. For example, both Winston Churchill and Prime Minister Harold Macmillan had American mothers. However, there were some tensions over the management of Germany, bases and nuclear weapons, Indeed, Britain's decision to build the bomb was the result of America's refusal to share the bomb with them. Many in Britain as well be feared becoming lackeys of the Americans. The British were also horrified by so how some American officials were willing to risk nuclear war with the Soviet Union and or proposed their proposed use of nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union posed a much greater existential danger to the British Empire. With Germany eliminated from the political scene in 1945, France still in shambles, and Soviet forces deep in Central Europe, the balance of power was dangerously sacked in favor of the Soviets and their local communist allies in Western Europe. Moreover, with the Soviet presence in Central Europe and a strong communist party in Greece, the Soviets threatened the British interests in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. For a time, Churchill secured these regions through a secret pact with Stalin, giving Stalin a stronger say in Eastern Europe, but by 1948, relations between Britain and the Soviet Union had gr greatly deteriorated. In many ways, the late 1940s meant a return to the British policies of the 1920s and 1930s, which were to isolate the Soviet Union. 
Great Britain viewed the Soviet Union as a strategic and ideological threat to its empire, as Marxism criticized both capitalism and imperialism, both of which were important elements in, in the British Empire. In the 1930s, a special branch of MI5 had been established to monitor the work of communists in the colonies, even arresting Ho Chi Minh in a 1931 Shanghai police raid. British military intelligence, in addition to MI5, actively shared intelligence with the wider British Commonwealth and the American FBI about the activities of Marxist organizations and their members. MI5 as well, as well bugged the office of the British Communist Party, monitoring both conversations in the building and phone calls. This information would provide vital intelligence in the various colonial struggles as anti-colonial movements often communicated with the British Communist Party. Similar to George Kennan's long telegram, British diplomats and intelligence officials warned London of the danger the Soviet Union and communism presented to their colonies. The head of the combined intelligence center in Baghdad warned against an early pullout of British forces from Iraq and Iran too quickly at the end of World War II for the fear that both countries would become overrun with Soviet intelligence agents and become Soviet satellite states. These fears were not entirely paranoia. Stalin had stated, quote, the road to revolution in the West lies through revolutionary alliance with the liberation movements of the colonies and dependent territories against imperialism, close quote. Walter Krzyzewski, a former NKVD officer who defected, corroborated Stalin's statement in 1939, telling British officials that the Kremlin targeted and supported liberation movements throughout the British Empire. It should be remembered that London and Washington considered the Soviets an ally of Nazi Germany from 1939 to 1941 as a result of the non-aggression pact signed between the two nations in 1939. Even before the end of the war in 1944, British and American military figures signed a formal agreement to continue the exchange of intelligence information about the position and makeup of Soviet forces after the war. Furthermore, only days after the surrender of Germany, Churchill ordered plans to be drawn up for a possible war with the Soviet Union. British Foreign, Foreign Secretary Ernst Bevan, for example, argued that the aim of Soviet policy was world domination by aggressive promotion of communist ideology short of all-out war. Moreover, with the communist drive in Asia, Bevan argued sooner or later the Soviets would move against the Middle East and Africa. As outlined in the 1952 foreign policy paper, quote, World responsibilities inherited from a 400 year, years as an imperial power, close quote. The British Empire, therefore, had to be maintained, defended, and developed against the dangers of communism. To meet these challenges, the British were instrumental in the formation of NATO, the Marshall Plan, and the Berlin Airlift, events we have covered in previous episodes. The definitive position of both the Labour Party from 1945 to 51 and the Conservatives from 51 to 55 was to maintain Great Britain's place as a world power in a rapidly changing world, both ideologically and technologically. The Middle East and Africa and the Far East remained key bastions of the empire, and Britain committed large numbers of troops to many key areas, including Palestine, Malaya, Kenya, and Hong Kong. Great Britain like in the First and Second World Wars, also worked closely with its Commonwealth nations of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand to contain the advance of communism. Great Britain as well became a nuclear power during this period, which helped to improve its ish image in the world and in dealing with the United States, becoming once again more of an equal partner in the short term. Domestically, in many respects, Britain, like the Soviet Union in the immediate post-war period, 
remained on a war footing. Efforts were made to monitor communist activity and weed communists out of public service and trade unions. The Foreign Office's Information Department was tasked with promoting the British way of life through propaganda, encouraging their audiences that their life was better in Britain versus the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe. Films, expositions, international conferences, and youth groups were used to promote social democracy. This was supported by white and gray propaganda out of the film industry and the BBC. You might be asking, what does gray and white propaganda mean? White propaganda is propaganda which truthfully states its origins. Gray propaganda is information of questionable origin that is never sourced and whose accuracy is doubtful. Black propaganda is information put out by an opposing government or institution and made to look as though it came from a friendly source. During this period, the Church of England was also brought into the struggle as the Soviets were atheists and the Church seemed like an excellent source to combat communist ideology. Britain avoided many of the extremes of McCarthyism, as seen in the United States, but did create a national consensus by the mid-1950s between the elites and the working public about Britain's place in the world and its role in the world. Nevertheless, this had been built through a process of state social vigilance and control combined with greater state management of the economy. Meanwhile, whilst trying to meet these foreign challenges, the new British government under Labour Prime Minister Attlee attempted an ambitious program to build a welfare state. They introduced universal health care, the National Insurance Act, which introduced Social Security, and he nationalized one-fifth of the British economy. Many of Britain's large industries, such as coal mining, electricity, and the railways, were brought under state control. However, Great Britain soon discovered that she could not main, both maintain an empire militarily and build a welfare state. By 1947, Attlee moved to reposition the British Empire and free up resources for his welfare state. First, Attlee decided to speed up the British departure from India. Second, Attlee decided to give Palestine back to the UN. Palestine had been a League of Nations mandate that Britain received after the First World War. Since 1945, the British had been caught in a growing civil war there between Jewish immigrants and the indigenous Palestinians. Attlee had also given up on supporting Greece and Turkey against communist aggression and asked Truman and the Americans to take the lead. Despite these moves, the British weren't giving up on the empire and Britain's position as a world power. In contrast, Attlee questioned the value of many of these long-term commitments. Palestine and India were clearly regions that were expensive to administer and unwelcoming to British colonial rule, whereas in the Mediterranean, it would be impossible for Britain to bolster both Greece and Turkey against Soviet aggression without American help. Attlee also questioned the value of these far-flung bases with the advent of atomic weapons. These large naval and air bases throughout the world, costing millions of pounds to maintain, would be wiped out in a flash in any future atomic war. Thus, he saw many of these bases as a waste of money and resources. However, the empire still held sway over the British population, and they felt a deep moral responsibility to empire. Starting in the mid-19th century, the British had a missionary zeal to educate and lift up the, quote, colored subjects of the British Empire, or what was famously described as the, quote, white man's burden. Many of the elite of mid-20th century believed that Britain's colonial subjects could be transformed into, quote, modern people similar to the British themselves. They came to see the industrialized welfare state as the highest point of human social development. 
They believed that through economic development and education, their colonial subjects could be raised up to become members of the modern and civilized world and a part of the wider community of democratic nations, the British Commonwealth, and the United Nations. These British ideas about colonial development would ultimately become influential and directly influential in American universities, governments, and institutions, and in shaping modernization theory in the United States throughout the 1950s and 1960s, which we'll talk about in a later episode. I want to take a moment here and thank you for listening to the show, and I want to thank you all for spreading the word about us and uh, telling your, that your friends about the show. I also want to specifically thank Morton Nelberg Nielsen for your very generous contribution, as well as Sun Nisberg and Christian Erickson and John Bates. I apologize if I mispronounced anyone's name. Uh, me and my colleague, David Force, really appreciate the help. Your support helps the show to financially stay on the air, and it motivates and excites us to work hard in bringing you guys future episodes. So if you want to help support us, check out the website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. We greatly appreciate your support in, in helping to keep this show going. Now back to the show. Despite the ravages of the Second World War and the growing non-popularity of the European Imperial Project, the imperial ethos of the British Empire remained intact. By the 1950s, the British Empire had been a constant in international affairs the last 400 years. It was not clear in the late 1940s or the 1950s to the British themselves or others in the world that the British Empire would cease to exist any time in the near future. The focus on and celebration of the empire continued in Great Britain well into the 1950s, with imperial expeditions such as focus on, quote, focus on colonial progress, close quote, a part of the Festival of Britain in 1951, or through films such as King of, of the Khyber Rifles, 1954, and 55 Days at Peking, 1962, which celebrated themes of empire and the British imperial worldview. British youth continued to be taught the imperial philosophy in textbooks, like the 1956 edition of Jasper Stenberg's The World, which emphasized the, quote, developmental benefits of European colonial rule and outdated British eugenics beliefs. Socially, the empire was celebrated in events such as Empire Day or Empire Youth Sunday, which continued to be observed in British schools into the 1950s. In addition, youth organizations such as the Boys Rifle Brigade the Sea Cadet Corps, Boy Scouts, continued to re reinforce the British imperial worldview and militarism into the early 1960s. Great Britain as a world power had been in the process of economically developing her colonies since the early 19th century. Yet, despite the efforts and zeal of private individuals and charities to educate and aid peoples in the colonies, the British government was often reluctant to invest in social welfare and economic development, uh, development programs that would not clearly benefit London or the wider British Empire. However, events and new ideas around modernity began to change the British perspective around this issue. Because of the Great Depression, strikes and urban riots became widespread throughout the British Empire starting in 1935. British colonial officers came to view these problems as a result of industrialization and urbanization. British thoughts about industrialization and urbanization were inevitably influenced by Britain's own experience of the Industrial Revolu Revolution in the early 19th century, as illustrated in the welfare study of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which stated, quote, The problems with the native urban population present 
present are the same which we had to be faced in Europe at the time of the Industrial Revolution, close quote. To familiarize themselves with these types of issues, the Colonial Office in the 1930s interviewed members of trade unions and factory inspectors to gain a greater perspective on how to deal with the problems of an industrialization and urbanization. British Keynesian economics became highly influential in shaping these perspectives, as well as works by B.S. Rowntree on poverty in early 20th century England. These perceptions about the change of colonial society were reinforced by government commissions such as Lord Haley's Colonial Social Science Research Council and anthropological studies, including Godfrey Wilson's The Analysis of Social Change, 1945, which, conducted, which were conducted in the 1930s and the 1940s. Ideas about the innate racial superiority of European peoples over others also came into question in the 1940s as modern science and medicine disproves many, disproved many of the ideas about racial superiority and eugenics, which had been popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. Nevertheless, it's important to note that ideas of racial superiority remained popular in, many, in some academic and political circles well into the 20th century and were not marginalized until much later in the 20th century. The traditional imperial paradigm was also changed as a result of the era of self-determination, especially in the aftermath of the Second World War. In the words of Arthur Jones, Secretary of State for the Colonies, 1945, I'm sorry, 1946 to 1950, quote, The war cry of the Allies had been freedom and democracy. Authoritarianism and political domination had been denounced. The propaganda had been infectious and had spurred on colonial peoples to forgo many of their immediate wants. It would now be both hypocritical and embarrassing with the war over and the, and the world made more sensitive regarding its obligations to dependent and underdeveloped countries for any British government to show indifference to colonial progress. Popular perceptions and international pressure made it difficult for Great Britain to remain a progressive, democratic, and modern society while maintaining an openly racist, hierarchical colonial empire sustained by violent coercion. Slowly, colonial policy began to change. By 1939, the Colonial Office established a, state, a social service department within the Colonial Office tasked with looking after the public health, labor conditions, housing, and education of its colonial subjects. In 1940, Great Britain passed the Colonial Welfare Act of 1940. Unlike before, British tax revenue would be used in British colonies for investment in municipal water programs, school construction, and a number of welfare programs meant to benefit the lives of its colonial subjects. By 1951, over 43% of the expenditures included in development plans for the British colonial territories were allocated to social development. More importantly, the British Empire would take an interventionist approach in the lives of its colonial subjects. For instance, in 1937, only 11 colonies had labor offices, but by 1941, 33 colonies had labor offices. Many of these reforms and programs were delayed as a result of the Second World War, but the administrative mindset had been set in place for the post-colonial policy. In the 1920s, the model colonial official was a man who, quote, knew his natives. He had a keen understanding of the politics, cultures, and customs of the communities he administered. By 1950, in contrast, the model colonial official was a technocratic expert who was eradicating disease, managing the economy, and organizing local school systems. 
However, this did create a complex set of tensions as British administrators attempted to both systematically create a better life for their colonial subjects, while at the same time attempting to exploit the natural resources and workforce of these colonies for the greatest possible profit to fund an imperial project which had become internationally deeply unpopular in the context of the nationalist era of the 1950s and 1960s. Despite the obvious benefits from the British perspective of the welfare empire to its colonial society, it was reasoned that some, especially Africans, would have trouble adjusting psychologically to their new surroundings. As the Royal Institute of International Affairs pointed out in 1944, quote, During the last 30 or 40 years, many Africans have experienced a transition from a way of life similar to that lived by our ancestors in this country in medieval times to that of the unskilled laborer in a modern city. The spread and scope of this revolution raises profound psychological and social problems for both the individual and the community. This, close quote, this belief in the inability of most Africans to mentally handle modern society would become an important element of the British ideas around colonial development, as it became the leading explanation for civil disturbances in Great Britain's colonies, especially during the Kenyan crisis. The colonies also took on a new value as fears of nuclear war were heightened. After the Soviet detonation of an atomic bomb in 1949, the possibility of a nuclear war between NATO and the Soviet Union seemed almost inescapable. British planners and government officials wanted to retain as much of the empire as possible, which could be relied upon to rebuild Great Britain in a post-World War III world. As it was projected that much of Britain's population, infrastructure, and cities would be destroyed in the subsequent nuclear exchange. Nevertheless, these colonies were threatened in the new context of the Cold War ideologically by the spread of communism and nationalist movements which, focused, which found a new ally in the Soviet Union. In the words of Kenneth Younger, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, 1950-1951, In the war of ideas, the cards seem to be, at present time, to be somewhat heavily sacked on the communist side. A further communist trump is the fact that both Russia and China were at, their mo at the moment of their respective revolutions poor and industrial backwards. By contrast, the Soviet Union has in 40 years become the second greatest industrial power in the world, while China, first eight years of communism, gave promise of some similar development. But this, uh, th but this alternative path to development did not come without its cost. As Younger explained, quote, most of them, developing nations, do not think deeply of the hardship or the loss of political liberty which the communist method entails, close quote. Like Amer American adherents of modernization theory, the British felt that Marxist-Leninism would retard the development of colonial areas, causing them to turn to communism. As General Templer pointed out, quote, The way in which the Russians hoped such exploitation should proceed is familiar enough. First, the basic irritants are worked upon. Next comes the establishment of a progressive, quote, united front based on local educational classes. This is extended to include the industrial workers and peasantry. A local communist party is then established to seize control. Local administrative services, especially the police, are penetrated. Confidence in the government authority is weakened by acts of sabotage and the revolutionary situation so created by the communist hope to start an insurrection and seize power, close quote. 
in the American and British perspective, the communists were willing to exploit the political and economic instability of developing states to seize control of these societies through the co-opting of its indigenous nationalist and labor movements. As Templer again explains, quote, well before it reaches its culminating point, it can be assumed that we shall have to intervene, quote, close quote. In other words, Great Britain would have to take the necessary political and military steps to prevent societies from becoming communist. In the post-war era of the early Cold War, the British Empire had come to adopt a policy of partnership in which the institutions of the empire became agents of economic, political, and social progressive change in the developing world and a reflection of the modern welfare state at home in Great Britain itself. Indeed, many British officials believe that Great Britain's liberal, democratic, social welfare empire would, might be more appealing ideologically than the United States with its uh, rampant capitalism and race segregation or the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union. In an ideological sense, this shift in the British policy was important because the British Great Britain had shifted the legitimacy of its empire from one based on racial superiority and a hierarchical power structure to one based on knowledge and technology. In essence, it was argued Great Britain's mastery of technology and the social sciences gave it the authority and responsibility of developing its African colonies and subjects, since Africans and their, quote, backward state were incapable of rational self-rule. Unlike French or Portuguese imperialism, the British did not attempt to make its colonial subjects imperial citizens. The official British policy was to move the colonies towards, quote, self-government, like the white dominions of Canada or Australia. In the British perspective, a society becoming, quote, modern was more than just possessing tools and technology. Modern modernity for the British was the acceptance of a worldview of modernity. The British recognized the dangers of his society as it made the transition from a, quote, traditional society to a, quote, modern society. As the University of London professor of education for tropical areas, uh, Lennon El Elvin explained, the West generally accepted empirical assumptions and specialization within society, whereas in developing societies, quote, there is a vast amount of what on any account, most of us would call superstition, uh, belief in magic, and, close w and witchcraft, close quote. As Elvin would explain, these views were based in the society and not just the individual. To change the v these views would cause social and political instability. As he explained, individu quote, individual uh, freedom is limited because we begin to operate within the framework of that society into which we have been born. And a society can't accept every new influence uncritically and survive as a society. The power of every society is to give security to the individual depends uh, not, of course, on its being rigid, but on its being stable, even though it's stable in the moment. It is the difficulty of maintaining such a stability in movement when forces of change are, are setting up pressures on so many fronts at once. Close quote. Elvin comments illustrate the central challenge of the, idea, of the British ideas around colonial development and modernization theory face in the developing world. Quote, basically, how do you modernize a society while maintaining political stability when the very process of modernization undermines traditional beliefs such as social order and traditional elites? Ultimately, Great Britain became trapped in its own theories of development in a policy of gradual independence for its imperial colonies. 
as the Colonial Office recognized in 1952, quote, by and large, it is inconceivable in the circumstances of the world today that we could use force to actually retain a large colony under British administration against the wishes of a majority of its people, close quote. Consequently, it became British policy to identify modern, quote, modern educated, democratic, and capitalist colonial subjects they could devolve power to without the society collapsing and falling into political chaos or communism. British officials and advocates of British development theory favored a constitutional system of government but were fearful of popular democracy. As one pointed out, it should not be the policy of the Labour Party to concentrate solely on universal suffrage, which in a historical context is recent and almost unimportant innovation in Britain itself, but rather to establish the principles of constitutional government which is a very different thing from mass democracy, which in Europe and elsewhere has been so easily converted into tyranny, close quote. Consequently, the mission of the British foreign policy in its colonies, as framed by the British development theory, was the economic and educational development of the colonial subjects until such time as they could be granted independence and achieve membership in the Commonwealth of Nations. British decolonization was also unlike that of France or, say, Belgium, in that the British government used intelligence uh, services to smooth the transition to independence. MI5 reformed British colonial intelligence in the wake of the Cold Second World War to meet the threat of the Soviet Union. MI5 helped to recruit and train colonial intelligence officers and posted security liaison officers, or as they were called, SLOs, to every major British colony and dependency that gained independence in the post-war years, which were welcomed by host countries. Additionally, Britain spent a great deal on training and reforming colonial police services in the late 1940s and 1950s. On average, from 1954 to 1958, MI5 helped to train some 250 colonial police officers a year. Recruits were given lectures and training on the dangers of communism, methods of investigation, and record-keeping. In conclusion, British policy during this period rotated around three main positions, Europe, America, and the Empire. Britain and America helped to check the Soviet advance through Europe, but, had to commit but she had to commit resources she didn't have to the task. Britain during this period secured America as an ally and its commitment to European security. However, they were far from getting the relationship they wanted from the Americans and were still very much the junior partner. The empire became a slow rearguard action. Britain found it both economically and politically difficult to retain her colonies. In many ways, the Cold War ultimately helped to justify their presence and assuage American pressure, but as we will see, these were asymmetrical conflicts Britain ultimately couldn't win, and as decades passed, her empire slowly disappeared. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 23, The Late British Empire, 1945 to 1955. Remember to stay tuned for our next episode, March the 15th, as we examine British intelligence during the early, early Cold War. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history but still want to help us, give us a positive review in iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon uh, on our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show. 
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.